hypothetical situation. Yes. Okay. You get an email. Mm-hmm. It's 1999, maybe 2001. I don't know the exact date. Hold on don't a second. Got the numbers. Sure. Okay, the email is downloaded. Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> that dial-up connection. Most importantly, Jeff, it has a subject line that says, I love you. And it has a link in it. Are you going to open deleted. up that email? You deleted? I, I know it's a scam because the subject line is I love you. I lo- <laughs> Something that would <laughs> never happen. N- it would never life. happen. <laughs> well, uh, well, good for you, Jeff, because you avoided a catastrophic worm that tore apart uh, hundreds of thousands of computers in the United States. I'm a hero. During the, uh, during the early stages of the internet. And today, we're going to be playing a game that pays homage to the wonderful pioneers of spam emails and phishing and internet phishing. Hello and welcome to Roll and Move, the internet's podcast where we take a look at some of the more questionable board games of the past and we put them under a microscope and hopefully we get to enjoy their mechanics that involve dice rolling. Maybe some moving. I am one of the creators and founders of Rough Draft Games, Thomas Jungerberg, and with me as always is... I'm Garrett Lively. I only accept check or money order. Oh, good. Very nice. I got a nice Western Union guy that I go to for all my payments. <laughs> and I'm Jeff Lee. I'm going to unsubscribe from all of you. You can you can try and join that, uh, that do not mail list, Jeff, but it just doesn't work. I keep getting calls from these people. Today we're looking at the board game. Well, not really board game. Card game, right, Gar? Uh Yes, it is. I... The card game of junk email, as it is advertised on the box. Right. It's called Spammers. So this thing came out all the way back in 1998. And I don't really know if it was in the market, because I, I, I don't think this game exactly was hitting the shelves in, like, a Target or a Walmart or a... Was Big K... Like, Kmart? Kmart, Kmart was yeah. still around. Still alive. 90s, right? Still around. Still yeah. alive. Maybe a Sears or a Macy's. I don't know who all was selling board games back then, but I think to really understand the game Spammers, this card game that we're going to be telling you guys about, I think it's worthwhile to take a take a look back into the window of a cultural phenomenon that was happening at the time. Because there were so many technologies that were just hitting the scene. When was the dot-com boom? Was that like, that was or that was around this time, That right? was right around that era, I think. Uh, you know, I think around, I think in 98, I had a computer. I remember I was sitting in my kitchen um, on the kitchen table. And we would all, I, you know, I would be home and just be using it like six hours of the day after I got home from school. <laughs> and um, your, mom, oh, yeah. your mom would come home and like, I've been trying to call you for three hours. <laughs> Why have you been tying up the phone lines? Oh, oh yeah, dial up. Because Good you man. couldn't. Perfect, man. And all the games that I had were just like the Reader Rabbit games. Maybe like the Magic Hat, like Mist <laughs> oh, games. Yeah. Backyard um, Baseball. Pajama, oh, yeah, man. Pajama Sam. Uh, man, I had a ton of computer games. <laughs> and it was all brand new. It didn't matter what the game really was that you were able to waste time in a new way. And we as human beings are always looking for more interesting ways to waste time so the computer was just a a beautiful innovation in that field of human endeavor yeah and what was really interesting is like you know everyone talks about now how um there's this addiction to staying connected um i would you know there's a huge argument to be made there that that's when that whole era started getting on the computer you guys probably remember we would get on um sign on immediately we'd log into aim and then we'd be chatting with each other after we got back from school because <laughs> yeah after we left school and then between the bus ride or the car ride home until we got home there's no way for us to communicate a lot of us didn't have cell phones smartphones didn't mm-hmm. come out until we were like graduating high school so all that stuff was pretty 
pretty new. And then um, it was just kind of crazy to be sitting at your house but still being connected with everyone that you knew at any given point in time. You can reach anybody. So that was what was pretty incredible. That whole thing was also what led to a lot of, you know, scams. And, you know, the the long reach of the Internet was as fascinating as it was scary. Right, because there was a whole lot of trust that you had to place in anonymous communication. You you dial up, you get on your your Netscape or your Mindspring account and then you would create like a you you could join a chat room and you're you're dealing with individuals either through email or through chat rooms that you've never met in person so there's an incredible amount of trust that we're automatically placing. I don't think the skepticism had really set in like it has today, where, you know, you read a news article on the internet and you say, fake news, that's not real. <laughs> like, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's too good to be true. But it, it was during this age that you would get an email in your inbox and it's just like, you can become a millionaire from farming goldfish. <laughs> what? <laughs> You're like, oh, really? Really? Yeah. I don't know. It's the first thing about goldfish, but they're pretty tasty. <laughs> Eating goldfish. Click on, click on this. But yeah, there was. It was just. It was a much more innocent time. It was really interesting to see uh, the first in people bust onto the scene who who took advantage of that innocence. So since we're going to be talking about spammers today, I, I thought it might be fitting to maybe talk to you guys a little bit about some of the more famous scams that have. Uh, plagued the internet since uh, since we've been shooting email communication. Are you guys familiar with 419 scams? That sounds familiar. I couldn't tell you exactly what it is off the top of my head. Okay, okay. So let me give you a hint. Does this does this sound familiar? Hello, I am a Nigerian prince. <laughs> yes, yes. And I have inherited millions of dollars. All I need is a bank account information and for you to wire me $5,000 and I can give you your $6 million. So the famous Nigerian scam, the phishing email, mm-hmm. is what were referred to as 419 scam. So I have a Newsweek article pulled up. I'm going to read a little bit of that for you guys. So it says, Nigerian scammers are generally regarded as pioneers in the sending of mass letters, messages, and emails seeking to defraud any recipient foolish and greedy enough to fall for their tricks. Although the signs are that the practice was now spread worldwide, Nigerians call these 419, so called by the reference to Article 419 of the country's criminal code, which concerns fraud. Yet Nigeria's 419 scammers have a far longer pedigree than most people realize. The first properly documented 419 letter dates all the way back to 1920 and was written by one P. Crintisil to, <laughs> to a contact in the British colony of the Gold Coast in today's Ghana. Sintasil launched into a long description of the magical powers that were in his possession and that could, on a payment of a fee, be used <laughs> to the benefit of the correspondent. Crintasil signed himself P. Crintasil, Professor of Wonders. So these, uh... <laughs> What a great tag. So this, this is I know. this is just the African ev- evolution of the snake oil plot, right? Yes, 100%. Theft and scamming is a worldwide phenomenon, but probably the people who did it best in the in the internet age goes are the people who revitalized the Nigerian scammed. But the game that we're going to be playing today kind of uh, makes fun of and pokes fun of, of a lot of the early uh, early phishing scams that were present in the 90s and uh, people's people's gullibility just because some new tech came along to fall for said scams. Oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's way easier to access millions and millions of people as opposed to, you know, sending out a, a physical copy of a letter. 
To yeah, and even if you, you know, get one percent of that population to bite, you know, then yeah, yeah, it's free money. It's so easy to just keep sending those lures out and keep hoping for more fish. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, let's take a look at the guy who is behind the game. So the man behind the movement, the man behind spammers. Uh, actually, we don't have a. I know normally this is a time where we pull up like some ridiculously small company or like some company that specializes in reskinning games, but we don't have that this time. This is actually published by Atlas Games. Yeah. And Atlas Games is a pretty well-known independent gaming publisher, which goes to, I think it goes to their credit because Spammers is certainly a game, if it came out in like 1998, pretty much anything you were dealing with back then was like Shoots and Ladders, um, it was Operation Candyland, that's, that's all my closet had filled, it was filled with. So Spammers must have been a pretty early game to be sold in smaller independent game stores. If you go online and you look at its online presence, there's not a lot of people who own this game or even remember this game. Mm -hmm. So it came out in a time that was pre-Renaissance and sort of flew under the radar for a long time. But the question is, does it deserve to fly under the radar? So let's... it, Go ahead, Gary. It's funny, my box I my box had never been played and it appears to be from nineteen ninety eight. Uh but it, inside my box I had Time the machine. At, I had the Atlas Games nineteen ninety eight product catalog uh, that came along with it. Oh yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. product you wanna catalogs, read some of that? Man. Yeah, absolutely absolutely. So it, it seems their target demographic were those that wanted to play games and also wanted a little jolt of, of humor. Uh, they had the mm-hmm. game Lunch Money, which was an exciting, fast-paced multiplayer card game um, with dark and psychological images. Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> with the raw dynamics of a merciless street fight. Uh, they had spammers here in the catalog that came with it, which I guess they just mass-produced this catalog. Mm-hmm. We have Once Upon a Time, which is a storytelling game uh, for all the players. We have the game Colts Across America, which is an unholy war the likes of which you've never seen in Colts Across America. Colts and factions from the Cthulhu mythos wage war over the United States. And then we so have So they've been Ars doing Magica. shitty Cthulhu games since the 90s. I always thought that the steampunk shit that you see all kind the time in more like recently, game shops, maybe yeah, it was yeah. more recent. But I guess no. I guess that uh, that god-awful uh, sensation... Has uh, has legs on it, doesn't it? <laughs> right. So, but it, but it's interesting. Yeah, they, they. I mean, they were going for the smaller market board gamers. One of the first in America, certainly, uh, to be going for these. You know, they, they have the very humorous um, take on a lot of these things. So they're 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 looking for people that want to um, have a, a little bit different of a board game experience. And they're still going today. I mean, Atlas Games. They started in 1990. I just checked their website, but they're they're still going. They uh they did. If you guys have ever played Gloom, that was them. I've actually played that with my my brother, and uh, I think we were in a bar and we found a copy and we played it, and it was it was pretty fun. Um, Pieces of Eight. Uh, is another one of their uh, games that they've done. I think that was actually by the same designer who we're going to talk about. Uh, Lunch Money is still in print. So that game that you talked about, mm-hmm. Garrett, is still being, I think it's been updated since then, or at least it looks like it has. Uh, Beer Money, Cogs and Commissioners. Uh, no, excuse me. Cogs and Commissaires. Mm-hmm. Uh, Corruption. I mean, they have a really extensive list of pretty yeah. pretty unique yeah. concepts for the uh for their games. Well, yeah, it's interesting. Um, I mean, thinking back to 1998, that was right on the the tipping point of kind of the revolution. Um, I think Reiner Kinnitzia and like Alan Moon were were 
were still in their heyday. This was before Ticket to Ride, but I know Alan Moon had already come out with um, Elfinland, I think, which was the game of the year. Um, Tiger mm-hmm. and Euphrates had just came out, and I think Rio Grande had just been um, established as a as a company. So it, it, we're right there at that area where um, these board games are coming to America and becoming very popular. So. It, so it's interesting that you know they've been already been around for eight years and they're kind of on the the forefront of this and and doing a few of the things that we see in in games today. Yeah, I'll, I'll say that um, while I don't think the game itself aged very well, and we can talk about that a little bit later, um, kind of in the in the theming and the flaws and shortcomings, but um, it's definitely ahead of its time. Um, you know, going away from the traditional uh, you know household board games and starting to dive into. Um, some tongue-in-cheek games and things like that. They um, they definitely took a risk um, in making this game for sure. And there there's a ton of mechanics in the game. I'm sure we get into as well. So by no means was this uh, another shoots and ladders. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's not your run-of-the-mill game by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, it's designer Jeff Tidball. Uh, Tidball. Tidball. I'm sorry about that, Jeff. Um, <laughs> but uh, he's been doing this for a long time. Uh, he he was the person who designed spammers and he has a resume he's like i think he's one of the first people who we're covering on the podcast whose uh whose game we're reviewing but he's he has definitely has a sizable resume i mean he's he's responsible for a lot of atlas's games i think he's the chief operating officer over at atlas games which is still very much alive and kicking i think pieces of eight did very well for them i know that uh He's also the recipient of uh, several different awards. He's he's won the Diana Jones Award for Excellence in Gaming, I think, with one of his games. In addition to uh, in addition to being what it lists on Board Game Geek, it's, this isn't on his personal website, which makes me suspicious if this is true or not. <laughs> but on Board Game Geek, it lists him as what what was that position, Garrett? Executive Developer of Battlestar Galactica, the board game. Right. One of our one of one of our favorites. Yeah. I think you're getting scammed. I, I, it's possible. It's possible <laughs> scam. We don't know. Here. Fake news. Um, I played that game with you, Garrett, and yeah. you, Jeff, and it's it's absolutely incredible. It's a wonderful game. Now that being said, I I kind of know just because like uh of of some of the stuff that I've done in Los Angeles, the title Executive Producer usually means <laughs> a little like inflated. nothing. Yeah, it's it's a little inflated. It's it's kind of a bone that they throw people who uh, they give somebody mm-hmm. who had a little bit of involvement. Oh, let's say you're a producer. Oh, thanks. <laughs> like that's just what they do. Let's but get, get the anyways, name on the box. Get a few more cells. Yeah, <laughs> he does say on his website though that uh, um, here. Let me read this for you guys. He he says that I am a seasoned creative executive, a master copywriter, and an award-winning game designer. That's that's <laughs> a, a little, hell of a self-promoting there, title. But, yeah. That is a $10 sentence, my friends. That is uh, well, very good. I think he had quite the teacher in the Nigerian prince that told him how to build himself <laughs> up. Uh, okay, so what is Spammers the Game? What did uh, Jeff Tidball create for us that we uh, played today? So let's let's clue people in and just exactly what's in the box? How does it work? Uh, like I said, I think my copy had never been played. It, it came with uh, all the chits unpunched out. But basically, Spammers is a game where you're trying to uh, basically build your lists of people that you want to scam, um, implement your scams, and make them very efficient, and then capitalize and ruin other people's attempt at uh, scamming others. So basically, on your turn, players have a choice of... Uh, they can take three actions. They can draw a card, they can play a card, or, or they can mail their uh, scams out to their influence. 
and cash in on their scams. Um, so basically you're, you're just balancing the, when you want to cash in or when you want to build up or when you want to target another player and, uh, try and drag them down. So that, that's the basic strategy of the game. Um, also balancing, cause you know, the more you attack the people that you influence, um, the less and less likely they are to fall for the scam. So you're kind of getting diminishing mm-hmm. returns on your, on your, yeah, certain becoming a little wary to your tactics. Mm-hmm. There. Yeah. yeah. So, so, resistance. At, right. Every time you scam a certain group, um, it becomes harder and harder to, to scam them in the future. So the, the way it works is you have, um, certain interests that groups are, um, akin to or not akin to you have certain interests that groups really want to see they want to see some free stuff they want to see some adult themes they want a get rich quick scheme you attack them with a certain scam uh, that has those um, attributes and if it has that attribute you get a bonus on your roll um, the size of your group you add that to your roll and then you roll a die and if you match up that number there you go. You get a point, and you, that scam becomes more beneficial to you. It becomes more valuable. The first person that gets a scam, a single scam valued at 12, or a collective group of scams valued at 20 at the beginning of their turn, they win. So that's yeah. it's it's fairly simple. However, there's a there's some some convoluted mechanics that you know make it a little bit more difficult. But once you get going, it's a it's a pretty straightforward game, and it's just you're making the decision: Do I want to build up? Do I want to cash in or do I want to attack somebody? I mean, those are the basic decisions of the game. Um, I this is really pre Munchkin take that right. Like this is yeah. this is the first game that I'm aware of where you're you're t- looking at your card and you're deciding whether you want to use it for your benefit or you want to use it to mm-hmm. kind of drag down what everyone else is doing. Uh, you can yeah you can devalue what everyone else is doing or you can you know really throw a wrench in everyone else's plans. Yeah, um, and, and there's a lot of versatility to the cards. I will say total king of the hill, right? Um, for those of you that haven't played Munchkin, if you're ahead, um, there's typically mechanics to drag down the leader um kind of like mm-hmm. a slingshot s mechanic but instead of getting back up to mm-hmm. the lead you're pulling the leader back down with you and everyone tries to attack you yeah sort of thing and that and that and that's certainly to its credit to the designer where he he wanted that that is certainly intentional like he yes. put in the rules it has to be at the beginning of your turn that you have the the valuation of your scams because he wants to give other players a chance to attack you right um and 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 go for that so yeah and a lot of people don't like that mechanic but you know whether or not they like it it's an intentional mechanic and and it does induce some decision making yeah um i i like the fact that it puts a target on your back because mm -hmm. it certainly amps up the pressure and amps up the uh the stress of those final rounds sure um because it doesn't matter like you're you're so close to getting your goal but like you're you're sitting on the edge of your seat because you don't know if someone's going to be able to rob you of your of your victory at the last second and there's it's the chances of being cuz everyone's saving up the cards that they they have mm-hmm. um until the final round so you're trying to put up as much barriers as you can with your cards if you have any special abilities that mitigate or uh get rid of some of the effects of that someone's trying to attack you with. Yeah. So it, it definitely, it's, you're always balancing whether you want to upgrade your stuff, attack other players or cash in on your thing. So I, yeah, it does. It has that nice balance of decision-making that is so important in, in modern board games. So I, I did really like to see that. Um, yeah. A ton of opportunity costs there. Right. So like you're saying um, a lot of the times, it's really easy to focus in on what you're doing and try to win by being first. Um, but sometimes you got to look around the board or look around the table and see how close are other people to winning um, and taking a sacrifice on your turn just to make sure that they don't end the game. Because 
you know, they, they could be a lot closer than you. Um, and, mm-hmm. and it, and it's more worth your turn to, to have people mm-hmm. do that. Or you can hope, um, we, we can talk about it later on too, but, um, you can hope that you can be a little selfish and try to still build up your, um, your points and hope that someone else, um, takes care of the problem of the, of the person that's in the lead. So it's a little bit of social contract as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think maybe we've seen this, uh, made better throughout the, throughout the years, but you know, as far as I know, this is the first example of it that I've seen. But I mean, one of the things that kind of helped this back for me is that you're constantly, you have this wall of text on each card that you have to read. Um, and if you have a, you know, an entire hand of cards, you're going back and forth between reading the card and then also making the decisions and then you're reading a card and making sure you understand it completely. So there's, there's a lot of text and until you're super familiar with the game, uh, you're reading, you're doing a lot of reading and it, it kind of bogs the game down a little bit on top of yeah. the take that mechanic, which we all know, you know, if you've played a game of Munchkin, it extends the game almost indefinitely sometimes. I, I think a good place to, to also talk about walls of text are, are with the instructions. <laughs> um, and this also might be a good opportunity to segue into like what's in the box and yeah. talking about exactly what comes with it. But to start things off with that conversation of what's in the box, those instructions I like I, when I saw you holding him, I was Good just Lord. like, did you rip a page out of the Bible? Because this is like, it's got the quad columns, you yeah, know, yeah. going on on it. Super duper thick, super duper small text. Yeah. And when you were, when you were going over, like what, what we have to do for the thing, you're talking about like, oh, there's, you have three actions and I'm, I'm like. Yeah. It's just these huge paragraphs with like no spacing in between them. So it's just like a headache to look at to begin with. It's like textbook. Uh, yeah. And I, yeah, thought, yeah. I thought Garrett was like building a shelf. It looked like they're just, they're just filled with text and it yeah. didn't have the pictures it's like Ikea had either. either. No, yeah, no it's just, it just straight, straight text. It's hilarious. Yeah. You're, you're, uh, you're exactly right. It looks like just like a King James Bible. You're just reading text. It's very difficult to ascertain what the simple yeah. instructions are. And yeah. I think they could have been simplified because yeah. yeah, I think when you were playing it and when we actually got the hang of it, when we were like in the middle of the round, I was like, okay, I kind of, I basically understand mm-hmm. what was happening. There was no need for that instruction segment to take 15 minutes. Yeah, I, I agree. I think for the most part, the rules of the game shouldn't be as complicated as they make it out to be in the instructions. I think they have some convoluted examples and I think they have some convoluted uh, descriptions. Um, but for the most part, the game is fairly straightforward and pretty easy to understand. I will say yeah, I, when you're playing it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. As soon as I got to set up though, I mean, I had questions, they had some things that they left out and I had to make some assumptions on how to set up the game. Um, so yeah, I, I think a big area of improvement could have been devoted to the instructions. That being said, what was in the rest of the box was, I, I really liked. I think thematically the artwork was really good. They had um, original artwork for all of the scams. They had original artwork for your hardware. Um, and it's pretty humorous artwork. It's 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 pretty nice. I think the box is kind of uh, themed. Like, it, you know, it's trying to get you to buy the box. It has, you know, a big patch of new written on it. And it's, you know, it looks like a big advertisement. Yeah, it's super duper colorful, bright, mm-hmm. shiny. I 100 agree with the artwork. It, it looks like very 90s esque. Like I, I wouldn't mm-hmm. say like I wouldn't say clip art, but kind of cl- has that clip art feel to it. Um, and just mm-hmm. it's really nostalgic. It's I think I think it's really well tuned to the era. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> not that you know that's what they had at the time, and it just happens to to be. Yeah, um, no, and, and the, I mean the box itself is held up great for something I found like underneath a a a. a, a what do you call those big plant pots? I feel like found it underneath it in a Goodwill. Yeah, you know, and it's like huge, 20 years like, old. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, it's it's in decent shape. 
Uh, and then, you know, inside the box, they even, one of my favorite touches was they had, they have the, the little insert that holds the cards, the little cardboard insert mm-hmm. just has a bunch of like, um, spam lines. For example, I'll just read you some of them, uh, write your Senator, just defend yourself against the IRS act now. <laughs> That's awesome. Hot, hot XXX gay studs floor opportunities, <laughs> accidental, Accidental law at waol.com. Doesn't anyone out there love me? So it's just got, you know, a bunch of flavor text on the actual insert, which, you know, it's a nice touch. That's a nice That's touch. That's kind of cool. Yeah. 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 Um, the component, the chits themselves, like the little cardboard components, they were a little flimsy, I got to say. Um, I mean, it, it's to be expected for 1998 it is probably what they had at their disposal. Uh, but, you know, when I was punching them out, I was, I was ripping some of them. Um, and one thing I really didn't like, and I, I'm sure people have learned to, improve this in the future is that all of the chits are blank on the back they're white on the back so if you ever accidentally flip one over you don't you know you're and these chits you know you're moving a ton of them around at a time so if you ever accidentally flip one over you don't know what it is and there's no reason for that because the information is never hidden yeah and it's a small Um, thing like it's a small thing to overlook right but it it has a pretty from a from a player standpoint from an experience Mm -hmm. standpoint it has a pretty um relatively annoying impact right so yeah yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely so you know for the most part i was totally on board with what with what was inside the box there definitely could have been some improvements to the instructions and you know to the the quality of the components but you know maybe that's just a sign of the times all right um so let's talk a little bit about the uh the gameplay itself so the main strategies we found out as we were kind of gaming this is it really boils down to one question to ask yourself of how you're going to win. Are you going to spread your points along multiple scams? Cause mm-hmm. you can ha- kind of have like different scams that are going for you and try and shoot for the 24 points. Or are you going to just go all in on one scam? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they tried to wait, they tried to wait that decision. They tried to make it look yeah. like it was more appealing to diversify your scam portfolio, so to say. Yeah. And, uh, but I didn't do that. No, you I didn't. Just, I, I went all in on one. I, I trucked in on one and uh, and I, I came out victorious on the other side. So do you think that that was kind of like a one off uh, aspect to the game or do you think that that's how it should be? It, sh- it should be approached. You know, I, I think it could have been. I think some of the limiting factors in that are you can only play one mailing list on your turn. So I think inevitably if players are going to attack you and they have the means to do so, it doesn't really matter if they're going to do it on one card or, or or not because they're still taking you down the threat down below the threshold mm-hmm. which you you can only score basically one or two points with that without the without the extra hardware so yeah i, I don't know that that decision is important as they wanted it to be but you know maybe i'm wrong we, that could be a, a thing that we would discover in multiple playthroughs that we're not gonna do <laughs> yeah i think that it um that it was just one of those cases where uh, you know we hadn't played the game enough um, and didn't wasn't really familiar with the strategy, so it was just mm-hmm. easier to just race one of your scams to to twelve um, rather mm-hmm. than spread it out because it, we didn't really feel feel a need to. Nobody really attacked each other um, too much early on the game. We're still trying to feel the game out. Um, I think if we were to play it again, uh, then it, it would very likely swing the other way where we would have to diversify because everyone would be trying to take down your highest level scam. Yeah, right. I, I, I just don't know about that because, like, to me, if you can only score one or two points per turn, with the exception of some cards, it doesn't matter if that one or two points is taken off a single card or if it's taken off, you know, a, a card that is part of the whole, you know? Right. 
So I, I, I don't part, know. Part of me thinks that like the jump between twelve and twenty four is so massive. It is, yeah. That it makes it less appealing to tr- like. How can I not go for like win the yeah. game in twelve points? Right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I, I, it, for us, it came down to whether or not Jeff and I had the cards to stop you, and we and we didn't. We, you know, we we hadn't saved the cards that we should have saved to to stop you from getting to where you needed to be. And you, you made a nice play where you're able to play two of your mailings in one turn, mm-hmm. and you you got like four points that turn. So you had a nice jump. We weren't prepared, and the game was over. Yeah, familiarity with the cards is something like I think Thomas was. Um, you know, ahead, but not so close to the to the end mm-hmm. that we thought that he would be. A, um, that the game was in jeopardy of being over. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, like Garrett was saying, Thomas played two cards back to back that that got him really close and got him a huge point lead there. So um, I yeah. just I think a really funny happen. thing that we should mention is that I had the opportunity not to stop the game from ending or to even stop myself from losing. But I could have essentially decided whether or not Jeff or Thomas won because the I had old a, switcheroo. <laughs> I had a card labeled the old switcheroo, which I could just take a scam from another player and give it to another player that's not myself. So I decided not to use that card in the hopes that Jeff was going to be able to stop Thomas. It didn't work out, but I think it's hilarious that that card, the king making card, is just there. So I couldn't have, I couldn't have won the game, but I could have stopped Thomas from winning. <laughs> and then, yeah, it, it, that was really funny. And I think in context of like, if more people would have play the game uh if we had more players in the game yeah uh, i don't know what the little, player limit is right a little um, king making i don't know uh, let me see. let me let me take a peek for you there jeff um i'm gonna say not written on the box so perfect there you go um oh, it was not let's say it was six game. right and we play with, yeah, a, sure. with a game of six you could have just made move that card back over to the player behind you uh, mm-hmm. And then you exactly. would have gained yourself more turns, uh, or, right, and yeah. more people could have could have had a chance to stop that person, even though they had the quote leading card. So mm-hmm. you could have delayed yeah. the inevitable and given people a chance to retaliate. But because we only had three, the chances were a lot smaller um, to stop that person. So yeah, I can see where if there was, if we scaled up the player base, um, the game would take a lot, lot longer because er- anytime anyone would get any sort of sizable lead. Uh, people yeah. would just tear that person down and, and yeah. yeah yeah i mean that's that's the game of munchkin right there right yep, exactly. <laughs> the more people yeah the longer it takes to to just get how long through. is the longest game of munchkin you played here oh my gosh like at least like four hours four and- hour game oh of munchkin because everybody's just sitting on cards waiting till some like you just sit on your cards and you wait till somebody gets close to winning and you prevent them from winning like that is the game of munchkin so anyways, we're, this isn't, we can review Munchkin on another podcast, but this mm-hmm. is, uh, <laughs> this, this game, I definitely saw the potential for that. I'm thankful that we didn't experience it. Yeah, but it's there. The potential still exists. Yeah. Oh, it's right? there. And I would say it's probably more likely than not to happen. I think it, you got not, I'm not going to say you got lucky, but you know, you, you, you had things line up for you where you were able to just like put yourself in position to win and mm-hmm. it worked out. But do you think that's a flaw? I mean, yeah, if you yeah, don't no, like, I, I, I do think it's a flaw. Absolutely. What about you, Jeff? Do you think it's a flaw to have like a game that can essentially go on forever as long as people <clears throat> like because it incentivizes, like Garrett was saying, for people to just sit on their cards as opposed to going for the win? Because the second that you go for the win, you put a target on yep. your back. Yeah, a hundred percent agree with Garrett. I think um, just prolonging the game for the sake of being in the game or playing the game um, doesn't make the game more fun, and it doesn't um, add yeah. value to the game. Um, you know, I, I'm of the proponent that if you have a short game um, that does its job, everyone gets a, a nice laugh out of it and you can play it again. Mm-hmm. Or you play a, a longer game that's more strategic and, um, you know, there's a lot of big decisions that you can make early on that, that causes mm-hmm. wave effects downstream. Um, think about Game of Thrones, for example. 
um, yeah. th- then then it's worth it to play those games. But for a game that you know the game the round round by round they're identical. The only difference is that when people get close to winning, you're just trying to stop them, and it's just you're doing the same things, and it's you're kind of going through the motions, and it drags out into a four hour game. Right. It's there's no fun for anybody there, and right. then you're just committed, so then you won't stop playing. Um, right, but you might buy. It- buy munchkin play it a couple times and put it on your mm-hmm. shelf and that's why a lot of people have munchkin but they don't offer to play munchkin so. well it's, it's interesting that you bring up game of thrones because it does a really good job of driving the game to a conclusion this game does not have anything driving it to a conclusion other than the players you know game of thrones it's the game is over either after someone takes the seventh castle or after 10 rounds you know right so there's not that yeah, round there's the hard limit mm-hmm. there's the hard limit so you know if if that 10 round limit wasn't there somebody could just not win but they could just sit on a castle and not let you have it and prevent the game from ending indefinitely. So you you have to have that in games. And I think we've discovered that, you know, in the 20 years since this game, that you have to have something driving you to a conclusion. You can't just leave this game in limbo for four hours. Right. Okay, so we've gotten to discuss some of the things that we think might be able to be, or could have been improved about the game. But, uh, Jeff, what, is, what does the internet think about the, uh, about the game spammers? Do we have any decent <laughs> user reviews to look at? Yeah, we got a good, uh, good bit of them from Board Game Geek. So I'll read one that I think captures our sentiment pretty, pretty well. Um, the game is a trip back to the early days of the internet, back when it was just breaking into the mainstream. To give you an idea, the game actually has to explain what spam is and how it works. Um, there's also jokes about outdated <laughs> technology like Usenet and modems. Uh, and if you pine for the 90s and would like to get a snapshot of what the internet was like back in 1998, then this is your game. So I think we covered that um, pretty well. It does a pretty good job of being you know, in the times. Um, that quote continues on, that review continues on to say, uh, if you're looking for an actually good game, go elsewhere. The mechanics are very simplistic, largely luck-driven, and have a he- heavy dose of take that. The jokes are well-written, and there's nothing supremely awful about the game, but it's no better than, say, Munchkin. So uh, I think mm. that captures exactly what we said. Yeah, so uh, another review that we got was um, from mgreen 2 says, suffers from kill the leader syndrome. Uh, and then uh, from Morganza said, I got this at an auction because I wanted to put the box up on my shelf at work next to the create your own computer virus game. Can you tell that I do email security for a living? So this is basically <laughs> this is basically a paperweight uh, or decoration decor, you know, novelty decor for this person. And, you know, they're not even looking to play the game. So that, that tells you a little bit about <laughs> about the game itself. I'd be I'd, I'd be tempted to do some board. Some board game art just looks great. Yeah. You have like Scythe or or uh who does the Pandasaurus games? Quanchi Quanchi Mariah, I think, is his name. He does a lot of the the Japanese artwork for. They're they're those board games are incredible as far as the artwork goes. But you so wouldn't yeah, want to buy a game for just that. that. You know, Not for that, just the game. Yeah. It's a no. little, little overpriced. Yeah. I, I must admit. No. Garrett, was this game cheap enough to buy for a paperweight? <laughs> uh you know i found it for a dollar 99 so it's not quite the paperweight price but it, but it was it was a <laughs> you'd, you'd it, get it's, a better, it's getting better close. quality paperweight is that what you're saying it's getting close yeah the, the msrp for this game on atlas games website is 25 dollars, which is a little still much for, now for, man yeah mm-hmm. well it's out of print now it's got it's, out, it's out of print but it, but the, the original msrp was 24.95 yeah but would you buy windows 95 for anything more than free <laughs> I'm just telling you what the MSRP was. I got a great deal, dollar ninety nine. That's good pretty look. good. Pretty good deal. Not quite paperweight price, but um, I think you're getting more than a paperweight when it comes to this game. So I'll go ahead and tip into my personal score. Okay, I thought that I I think it's sometimes important to view board games in the context of which they were created. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought that this game was doing a lot for what it accomplished in 
1998. You know, we talk about how Munchkin came along and Munchkin uh, was doing this. You can just play Munchkin was even in one of the reviews that we read. Uh, But the thing is, Munchkin wasn't around in 1998. What you had was this. And I think that this is a sort of a trailblazer in the idea of, you know, take that mechanics and managing uh, managing the different aspects of making sure that other players around you aren't getting too far ahead while also having to build up your own your own hand and that's pretty impressive but at the same time in my opinion not having something that's pushing you forward not having an end game that's or a clock that's ticking a shot clock that's pushing you forward and moving you towards that solid conclusion can just make the game drag on and uh also i thought the rules are really pretty rough to follow um i don't know (laughs) if there's a word for it when it's like I know one problem I have is if if a, if the game sounds too complex, then I just I a lot of times I kind of shut my brain off or I have just to force myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah I, I remember my, you I, said at the beginning of this, you're like, I'm screwed, so I'm just doing research while you read the rules. <laughs> <laughs> you end up winning, so it's funny. <laughs> you just like tell me what I do. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you know, sometimes I, I think that can be a problem with how the words, or excuse me, I think that can be a problem with how the instructions are written. And I think that was mm-hmm. a problem here. So if I was going to give this a score, I would say I might give this a solid. I'll give this a solid five. I've got a few really good things to say about this uh, in both the artwork and that I think it should automatically score a point higher than Munchkin because I think this game is a little bit better than Munchkin. Um, really? Least, it, yeah, if you, I mean, if you just compare the base games of both, which, you know, this doesn't have all the, the expansions that Munchkin has, but I think, I think this is, you've got more decision-making in this game than I think you do in Munchkin. Um, that being said, the rules and the quality of the, the component pieces really detracted for me. Um, and I think I got to take off for those as well. So I want to score it higher than Munchkin, but I don't know if I can go a full point higher than Munchkin. Uh, I think my my rating, my personal rating for Munchkin is like a four. I'm going to do a 4.5. I'll do 4.5 for spammers. 4.5. All right. Yeah. Um, Strong. Okay. I, you know, I I just agree with a lot of points you guys are saying. So I, I love the artwork. I thought the artwork was awesome. I, I'm I'm gonna give a nod to the fact that this what this did come out in the '90s, um, and it was extremely appropriate for the times. Um, so I'm gonna give it a nod for that. And even if you're looking back, there's a little bit of nostalgia there. Um, mm-hmm. I don't personally love the uh, take that mechanic. Um, so you know, I, I'm not a huge fan of Munchkin because of that, but. Some people are, so I can't really knock it there. And I will agree. I think the biggest thing is just rule clarity was pretty poor. Um, there's just too many words in the rule books. I think this is one of those cases where the gameplay um, is simple, but presentation means a lot. Um, and you look at the cards and you're like, man, this is just a lot to read. Uh, the car, you know, the, the rule page is a lot to read. And um, just a, mm-hmm. some simple formatting and some pictures would have gone a long way. So what would I score it? Um, I'm right there with you guys. I'm, I'm, I think I'm between a four and a five. If I compare it to some of the other games that we played, like Apprentice at 4.8 and Battle Yahtzee at 5.5, I'll give it a 4.75. I think it's right around there. there there's a, there's replay value there. Um, there's, there's stra- I think, more strategy than most of the games we've played so far. Um, I think the biggest knock is that... Would you play that, this game again? It's just like, I, I think it, it wouldn't kill me to play the game again um, because the, there's so many different routes that you could take. Um, and this is one of the games where complexity, rule complexity leads to, like, more routes and strategy which i don't think is always a great thing but there are a lot more routes than you can take versus a more prescriptive play style like say nfl rush zone that we played um Mm -hmm. so i i think that's good if you if you're really tactical and you can 
clear out all the roles and be really strategic. Um, you might enjoy the fact that there's a lot more routes and avenues. I think we just didn't have enough time to figure all those out. Um, but I, I just want to nod that they're there. So, um, <laughs> I'll give it a 4.75. I just quickly, I, I'd say I'd agree with that. I, I It's not a game I would seek out to play again, but I wouldn't be mad if I was asked to play it again. Not that that's if ever you had some happen. super fans, some spammers <laughs> super fan, just pin you down and say, yo, we got to play this right now. You'd be like, yeah. if you got an email in your email inbox <laughs> yeah. or in your junk box, it'd say, uh, please play this game with me. I'll pay you $5,000. And you'd be okay with doing it? I'd be okay with it. What's that put our average at, Garrett? I'm just curious. That puts our average at a 4.75. This is one of our least uh, differential as far as you know the the gap of scores we're giving. That's a pretty low okay. range here. Well, yeah. how does that compare? Let's do the big reveal mm-hmm. to the Board Game Geek score. Who's higher? Who's lower? What's up? Uh, Board Game Geek gives spammers a 4.2 out of 10. We are a full 0.5 points higher than board game geek one of the few games we're we're i wouldn't say much higher but we are higher on than board game geek yeah i think that's the biggest uh gap that we've given it a higher score on so i I don't know if we're nodding to the fact that we appreciate the 90s double check yeah (laughs) Mm -hmm. but uh (laughs) we got that nostalgia vision man (laughs) so maybe if it was somebody else you know any any older folks or younger folks they might not appreciate the game as much as we did but um, you know what I really disagree with? If you check out the score for Munchkin, that game is rated a 5.9. Yeah. How do you feel about that, Gare? I don't agree with that. I, I think I think this not I'm I'm not gonna say this is objectively the superior game, but this game out game came out three years before Munchkin. And as far as mechanics go, it's essentially the same. And this one I would say I would argue has more you know, a little bit more strategy. Yeah. 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 So Agreed. I would I would say this is I personally think this is a better game than Munchkin, and I think that discrepancy is way too high. Maybe higher wow. barrier of entry. I think I think that's probably why people don't like this game as much. Like you look at the rules and you're like, sure. man, this is too complex for me. There's a little bit too many elements. Um, yeah. And Munchkin's a, a lot easier of a game to just pick up and play um, with a lot of the same core mechanics. So maybe maybe they like the simplicity there. Um, I, you know, like, like I mentioned, I personally don't like the take it um, take that mechanic. So no, oh, sure. I, I yeah, think that no. might be personal preference too. But I mean, that's in both. And I don't think I don't think this deserves to be one point seven points Lower. below Munchkin. Yeah. Well, dear listeners, if you would like to avoid uh, being cursed if you do not forward this email along to 10 people that you know immediately, <laughs> you need to follow us on Twitter. We are at Rough Draft Games. We'd love to talk to you guys about uh, any and all things Munchkin related, Spammers related, or 419 related. So all you got to do is just reach out to us and we'd be uh, happy to chat it up with you guys. If you have any Albert Einstein origin stories and you want to send them our way, just send them over to roughdraftgames at gmail.com. Is that the is that the and his name was Albert Einstein? I think that, that one takes the cake. That's that's the best. Oh man. Jeff, is there any other way that they can get in contact with us? If you'd like to drop us any cash payments, uh via our payment options at roughdraftgames.com. You can visit us there. Um, or just visit our website to check out all the other stuff that we're working on. Yeah, we take uh, we take Venmo, PayPal, or Western <laughs> Union. Also, money in paper bags left under railroad tracks. But we would be remiss if we did not also ask you guys, if we haven't asked enough, we also ask that you leave us five stars on iTunes. Uh, it really helps us get the word out and spread the message about uh, mediocre to bad board games, which is something that the world definitely needs to know more about. Um, but until next time, guys take care bye
<laughs> <laughs> <Just go. laughs> so terrible to listen to.